0: Welcome to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. I am your host, Wes McAdams, and here we have one goal: learn to love like Jesus. Uh, we are continuing our series entitled "Hope for the Future of the Church," and today we're going to talk about how the American culture, specifically, is changing. And some people feel like, and of course, it is changing in rapid ways. In some ways, and and that often leaves people feeling disoriented. And even anxious and afraid and so we need to figure out as christians how do we navigate this changing culture and what are we to make of our changing culture how do we have hope and grace in the midst of the world we find ourselves in and today i'm excited to introduce to you our guest Ethan Longhenry, who preaches and evangelizes in the Los Angeles area for the Venice Church of Christ. I am so excited to have him with us. Ethan, welcome to the the podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Wes. Thanks for having me and glad to be here and hopefully you can
0: glorify God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I've never interacted with you on in person or uh, virtually, as it were, only on Facebook, but I, I so very much appreciate your perspective on things. I, I love how you are helping Christians to to navigate uh, the, the culture in which we find ourselves. And of course, your culture in, in LA is very different than my culture here in the Dallas area. But I, I said to, I was talking to some preachers recently from uh, the Portland area, and I told them that I think it's going to be so important for Christians and specifically preachers and evangelists and, and leaders on the West Coast to teach the rest of us how to navigate culture in the coming years. I think for so long, we've looked at people in the quote unquote Bible belt to, to teach the rest of the church, how to do life and ministry and, and how to uh, navigate the world we find ourselves in. But as culture changes, I think we're going to be looking to Christians on the West Coast to say, okay, now that our culture is looking more and more like y'all's has looked for a long time, how do we, how do we do this and how do we navigate this? So with that in mind, how would you just describe the culture that, that we find ourselves in today? Ooh, that's
1: a, that's a, it's a hard thing because it, it's hard to talk about our culture in a monolithic way. As you said, right. what's going on in Los Angeles is different. What's going on in Dallas and what's going on in Chicago or New York or Seattle even within Los Angeles, what's going on where I'm at near the west side mid-city is not the way it is in the valley or down in the South Bay or, out in, or of course, Orange County. It's its own thing out there. Uh, so it, it's kind of hard to generalize. But we are seeing a pattern where I think the easiest way of putting it is that Christians, people who profess Jesus, have been used to being able to feel that culture valued them highly, or that they were expressing the normative slash dominant slash uh, 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 culturally approved type of, of culture and ideology and lifestyle. And Christians are increasingly finding that that is no longer the case in our society. Um, I know we're talking about, you know, do we live in a Christian society or not? Uh, of course, there's always the issue of number one. Uh, was society ever really that Christian? You know, ask some of our black brethren about life before 1965. Right. Uh, didn't seem very Christian. Uh, also, uh, you know, is that the goal? Why should we expect to live in a Christian culture? Should that have ever been our posture or expectation? So there's a lot of themes going on here, but I think that I think that's where a lot of the anxiety is coming in and a lot of the... Uh, concern is because people are seeing that uh, being a Christian isn't necessarily always a positive thing in a lot of people's sight isn't necessarily a good thing is not socially acceptable and they're feeling that their power in society is very much endangered and so what are we going to do about that I guess becomes mm-hmm. the next issue
0: yeah yeah I think I think you framed that so so well and I think that that there's this tendency to to sort of look at numbers and get concerned, and I think to to some degree there's there's reason for concern. Um, but to to just look at at the the numbers, you could look at all kinds of different metrics, whether that be political and like you said, power, um, sort of the privilege that goes along with that power, the the protection that we have uh, because. It has been so very normative or even to look at things like uh, church attendance. We talked about that in our episode last week. But as we look at how church attendance, not just through COVID, but but has been waning for some time, I read a really interesting article uh, just this past week that expressed that maybe it's not so much Christianity that's in decline as it is what you might call cultural Christianity. And so for so very long, as you said, this sort of cultural Christianity was very normative, going to church, believing in God, living by certain moral standards. But if we really took a a, a look at things, you could look back at American culture, as you said, and you could it would be hard to really, in my perspective, and I think from your perspective as well, to point at any era in American history and say, okay, well, this is when we were a Christian society, or this was when Christian or the society or the culture was Christian. You could talk about slavery. You could talk about Jim Crow America in the South. You could talk about what has been done to Native Americans. And you could say, well, when in any of that were we practicing Christianity. So I think even when we talk about moving into a quote-unquote post-Christian culture, we have to really as you said ask was it ever Christian to begin with and what did we mean by that? In fact, I think maybe there are some positive things. We we often talk about culture in a very negative way. Do you see any any changes broadly again generally speaking in, in the cultural landscape that are actually positive for Christians.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think a big part of it is we have to have eyes to see it. That a lot of times we get ourselves in kind of a circle of the wagons or to use a more Texas analogy to go get in the Alamo, you know, and uh, and then I'll say now it's us versus them. And unfortunately that has been used a lot to kind of try to reinforce the us and to otherize the them and that's kind of helped rally the troops so to speak for all kinds of different reasons but what it does is it it then means that we're constantly looking at an adversarial relationship Uh, and that's damaging for two reasons first of all it sets an adversarial relationship up between us and the culture but then it also is creating a perhaps unfounded loyalty among the us and not allowing us to see critically what's going on with the us as well and i think both of these are causing us a major problem right now because there's a lot about current Christian culture you, in, in, in evangelical sense or, or, or even among you know, members of Churches of Christ that uh, have a lot of praiseworthy things. There's a lot of things that need a lot of critique. Uh, you look at culture outside, there's a lot that needs critique, and we do well at that. But there's also a lot of things that are praiseworthy. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have, uh, I think you have some people really starting to see that the way that we have structured our capitalistic system is not very healthy, not very sustainable. And you have a lot of people who are trying to figure out ways where we can, it's not trying to get away from capitalism per se, but how can we um, celebrate private enterprise while making sure that we have a safety net for people, while we're taking care of our environment, while we're, we're trying to live more sustainably and justly. Um, I think the recent movements towards social justice, I know that this this is a big one that is a us versus them thing that really... Uh, gets us away from the fact that there are a lot of very valid, important things being brought up, uh, a lot of inequalities, a lot of things that that are absolutely there. And these are being really discussed and brought to the front. Same with feminism. We want to talk about the excesses, perhaps, all the time. But the fact of the matter is, you look back in history, women were not being treated as equals. They were considered a second class. And now we're getting to the point where there's a lot more movement in our society, and, and hopefully among Christians, recognize that, Christ, that women should have uh, equal standing uh, to men before God and are equally dignified and should not be objectified. Um, Even the whole idea of social justice, which, you know, everybody wants to say is Marxist or this or that. There's also a lot of other commentaries that see there's a religious zeal there. There is, you can draw a line in the tradition of of Christian reforms from Francis of Azizi uh, through the Reformation, through the 19th century social movements, and get to modern social justice movements. There might be secular, but you look at our secular society, it's not like the Vikings, you know, we haven't returned to barbarism that way. It, it, I don't want to look at our post-Christian society as inherently anti-Christian. I tend to look at it kind of like teenagers with their parents, mm-hmm. that there is so much of the way people look at the world. And If you really start talking to people out in the world who are secular, don't have much belief, well, why, why should we do this or that? What, the reason that they're doing that is because it's coming out of a, uh, a, a way of living that is very much influenced by Christianity. but they see the sexual issues, they see the way that Christians seem intolerant, they see certain things that they're disagreeing with Christianity, uh, and of course the whole concern about institutional skepticism, which is a whole other issue. Uh, And so they have this kind of uh, rebellion against that, just like a teenager, mostly still shaped by their parents, but there's these little things that they're really rebelling against. And we would be very naive and foolish to act like you know, that those rebellions aren't an issue, but we will be equally foolish to then overreact ourselves and act like we're now staring Satan in the face in a way we weren't earlier. That society hasn't completely abandoned everything. And that there's still plenty of praiseworthy things that we can find. And we need, I guess my call is that we need to be the discerning. We need to be willing to have the critical thinking to see, okay, what's the good movement here? Because society is different. Yeah, society is different right now than it was, I think, even before COVID, let alone in the 90s, when I grew up, let alone the 70s, 50s, and anything there. Um, Some things are better, some things are worse. In the church, some things are better, some things are worse. And and so it's, it's not just, we can't just say, well, this is awful. We've got to find what is good and commendable and work with it. And we got to find what is difficult and challenging and be willing to speak critique when necessary, but also word of life into it and not just beat people about it over the head. Because what are we trying to accomplish? We're trying to reach people or we're trying to reassure ourselves that we're right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And this highlights exactly why I appreciate your perspective so much. And I love that word discernment. And I think that there's a myth, there's a myth probably to conservatism and a, a myth to progressivism the, the myth of conservatism says everything was better in the past, and if we could just hold on to that, then we could have a utopia. And the progressive uh, myth is that everything is going to be better in the future, and everything is continually getting better, and so we've got to press on to that. And I think the church has always, although arguably we've abandoned that role sometimes, has always had the ability and the wisdom from the Spirit and from Scripture to be able to, to critique, I love that word, critique what's going on in the church and in the culture and to affirm the things that they recognize and see that are true and good and right and pure. There there have always been good things going on in the culture that we could affirm. And so while we should have always been condemning and critiquing racism and genocide and whatever those things might have been, uh, Right now, there are things with sexual ethics that that deserve to be critiqued. But there are also things that, that deserve to be affirmed, to say, oh, you care about human beings. We also care about human beings. You care about equality. We also care about equality. You think all people are, deserve to be loved and protected. So do we. And, and to begin with those points of agreement or affirmation and then move towards, okay, well, this is where we, we might disagree, and, and here's where the gospel might provide better insight than, than our own human reasoning.
1: And if we could even go one step further and be willing to sometime listen to society's critique of the church, which is a very hard thing, but, you know, sexual ethics, let's talk about that. We, we, you know, we are very much on the front lines about the concerns about adultery, about pornography, about uh, sex outside of marriage. Uh, But the church needs to hear the critique of culture about how sexual abuse is handled and sexual assault has been handled. Because unfortunately, there have been a lot of situations where um, there's, to this day, a lot of people who will not take that as seriously as they should. They will not consider that uh, as much of a concern uh, for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, we need to hear that critique and we need to see, you know, there are some protocols that have place. Uh, in the state of California, at the beginning of this year, there is now a law that says that if you are working with youth for uh, at least 16 hours uh, or 32 hours a year, 16 hours in a given week, you have to take mandatory reporter training to be able to discern the signs of abuse. Uh, the secular society has put that in place because of what has happened to young people and the churches are just as much responsible for that as any other organization. Mm-hmm. And unfor- I have not heard about that in the church. I have gotten that from this is from, from all kinds of things I've gotten from the society. Uh, I think that God is absolutely concerned about sexual abuse. I think that it is absolutely as sinful as every other kind of sexually behavior and that we need to have love and care and and provide what, the, the survivors need from that kind of thing. So that's one example. I think white, white supremacy, I think that's something we did not want to see in the church, in the white churches. And uh, by the way, I think another important thing we need to make a distinction when we talk about this is I think that there's the white church and the black church. And I think you understand what I mean by that. These are cultural things that, that have happened over time. Uh, it's a lamentable way in uh, state of affairs. I don't think you need to go to the black church and, and tell them, hey, uh, culture's changing. Well, they've known culture's changing. And I think that a lot of times we should do well to listen to them, not just us West Coasters, you know, mm-hmm. left coast for a reason, right? But who has had to live in a society where they were not looked upon kindly for hundreds of years and yet somehow find a way of living in integrity, but our black brethren.
0: That's right.
1: And there's a model there for us as well.
0: Yeah yeah that is that's a tremendous point that they've been navigating multiple worlds and multiple cultures for a very long time and have have had to deal with being marginalized being oppressed and and those of us that are in the white church quote unquote we we have this fear that we might end up being oppressed, we might end up being persecuted. And to your point, who better than our brothers and sisters to look to and say, teach us how to deal with persecution, teach us how to deal with oppression, teach us how to live faithfully while being marginalized. And, and I think that, as you said, they've navigated that incredibly well, and can offer so much wisdom and insight for us. And, and to kind of transition to, to Scripture itself, I mean, we were given so much insight by Jesus and the apostles on how to navigate this. So when it, when it comes to biblical passages or biblical ideas, where do you go? Talk about how, how you look at scripture and how that informs how we navigate this situation in which we find ourselves and, and may continue to find ourselves.
1: Well, as you said, in a, in a real sense, it's the entire New Testament. Right. Because everything in the New Testament, we have to remember, is being written to, uh, we have Second Temple Jewish people, maybe a little bit after Second Temple Jewish people, who are already a very small minority in the Roman Empire. And it's their God that they've held on to in their belief for, for generations despite persecution and hardship. And the faith is going out to Gentile Christians now. But they are all still an incredibly small minority in a majority culture that at best barely tolerates them. And at worst starts with economic persecution, because if you're going to work in a town, you have like a guild and the guild is going to have meetings that honor a God that you no longer believe in. And if you don't go to those meetings, you're not the guild and you're going to be blacklisted to anytime anything's going to go wrong. They're going to look and see, you know what? The ancestral gods are mad at us. And it's those Christians, those atheists, Right. they call them atheists who they're not giving the honor to the gods and the gods are mad at us because of that. And that's why they were going to be persecuted. And so, but to me, probably of all of scripture, it's the letter of 1 Peter that really gets into this the best. Mm-hmm. Because Peter is encouraging these Christians who live in in modern-day Turkey to consider themselves as exiles, to, to see themselves where they live, where they've grown up and lived all their lives, just like Israel saw themselves in Babylon. That's the framework, that you're in exile. And what should you expect when you're in exile? Well, you're always going to be uncomfortable. You're always going to have to, you know, navigate those two worlds. Um, in 1 Peter 2, Peter, you know, tells them that they need to do, keep their conduct good so that when unbelievers malign them, it's not an if, mm-hmm. it's a when. It was an expectation. He tells the slave, look, when you are beaten, when you've done good, suffer it, because that's what Jesus endured. Jesus endured it, entrusting himself to a faithful creator while doing good. And then in chapter 4, I love the question that he ends up asking, uh, or statement, do not be astonished, in verse 12, that a trial by fire is occurring among you as though something strange is happening to you. And you think about it, the Jewish Christians getting persecuted for faith, that's, that's just Tuesday, right? I mean, hmm. that's what they're used to, that's what they're expecting, Right. Uh, we happen to have a very significant Jewish population here in Los Angeles. And it's been interesting kind of reading some of the publications, getting to know them. Uh, And you very much realize that they're always waiting for when the next time everybody around them is going to try to kill them. That's just their constant mentality. And when you look at the history of Jewish people in the past 2,000, 2,500 years, you you can't blame them. Because Mm -hmm. their history is periods of decent toleration. Uh, Now they're they're going to try to kill us again. So on and so forth. Uh, And by the way, of course, we condemn all that anti-Semitism and and, and all such things. And we're seeing, unfortunately, another rise rise of that in our culture. Um, But think about the Gentile Christians. They've lived their whole lives beforehand, you know, where no one ever cared about the gods they served. They'd all served the same gods. They never had to deal with this. Now, all of a sudden, they're in a situation where other people are going to be uh, hurting them or thinking less of them because of their belief in, in, in God. And... I love what you're talking about earlier about uh, you know being able to navigate the world. I think there's a lot of hope in a church that is prepared to live as a minority in a majority culture. Mm-hmm. The problem is getting us from where we are now to getting to that point because we have, unfortunately, a very immature response to evil because we're just not expecting to suffer evil. And we've never had to sit hard and think about what's going to happen when we suffer evil. You know, going back to our example of black christians you know they have to have a talk with their children about what happens in certain circumstances that you know there's an innocence that is lost in that that a lot of us mm-hmm. white people can still have because everything is designed to work for us and we're not going to go through those experiences um remember how we all felt after 9 11 right after 9 11 you know a lot of people felt unsafe that the world had forever changed had the world changed Mm-hmm. And they were probably safer on September 12th than they were on September 10th. Their perception of the world changed because they experienced evil. Mm-hmm. And when you experience suffering, you go through that, it's a very disorienting experience. And I don't think Peter's chest, I don't take that voice as, how dare you? It's, it's, it's more like, this is what's going to happen when you believe mm-hmm. in Jesus. And so now as we're starting to see that being a Christian is something that may not always be the greatest thing, and we're losing our cultural power, the fear is setting in the circling the wagons mentality is setting in and i'm afraid that's making it harder and making it worse for us because we're closing off at the moment we need to find a way to be open to finding ways of reaching people we're creating walls and and uh and barriers when we should be trying to figure out ways of working to figure out how to reach people and be more open at this time and i think it's a judgment on the church uh, you know uh, I've been speaking the past few years as a revelation, an apocalypsis, an unveiling, where all of a sudden we've seen where people's hearts and minds are. Mm -hmm. And we've seen, unfortunately, what happens when people feel like their position in society is threatened. And I expect that. I expect any group of people whose power is being threatened to react that way. But the people of God should not be that way because we should never have felt entitled to that power in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so that's where if all... Our culture can see that Christianity is on the wane and it's, you know, kicking and screaming all the way down. And that's not a good witness for Jesus. Hmm. And so the, there's a lot of hope in the future, but we're going to have to do a lot of limitation and a lot of grieving and a lot of repentance before we get there.
0: I just want to take a short break from our Bible study to tell you that if you are enjoying this discussion, you might also enjoy my book, Beyond the Verse. You can find the audio version of the book at radicallychristian.com audible. That's radicallychristian.com audible. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can actually get my book for free when you sign up for a free trial. So go to radicallychristian.com audible. Now back to the Bible study. Yeah. Well and and I think and I think that that, even just the word hope is so important because what we're not saying by hope is positive thinking or or just being optimistic or saying our circumstances are gonna get better. In fact, the 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 worst prognostications that say things are gonna get bad, we're gonna be persecuted. I I never argue with those people, even though I think that there is a a false sense of, of, of a persecution complex sometimes. If people say, "Hey, don't you know persecution is coming?" I say, "That very well might be the case. It, it, it very well might be the case when you look at the way that people are shut down and canceled and fired because they say something that that the powers that be don't agree with." Oh, I I have no doubt that that those mobs are coming for us. I have no doubt that that will one day be the case. So I have no desire to to give people false expectations that tomorrow or 10 years from now or 50 years from now things will be better and, and that things we won't have to go through that persecution but it, as you said we have hope we have hope when we look at the cross of Jesus and and when we look at the cross and we look at what Jesus did and as you said is Peter lays out in 1st Peter as the model for how we live is that we surrender ourselves to death and we're willing to suffer and die because we know that on the other side of death is resurrection and there on the other side is victory and we know that God raised up Jesus and will raise up us up as well. So we're not saying, "Hey, if we play our cards right, we won't be persecuted." We're saying even if we are, we're going to endure it. We're going to be kind and gentle and loving and be gracious and and expect god to do what god has promised to do and so yeah I, I love that word hope and i i think that as you said it is a judgment upon the church whether or not we're really embracing the gospel because the the people of jesus day probably expected the messiah to to be one to build walls and to draw the sword and to kill people and to destroy things in order to claim victory but instead of claiming victory that way, he claims victory through the cross. And then he calls us to take up our cross and follow him.
1: Absolutely. I think our big tr- problem is we got to get uh, the fog of fear to clear out so we can start mm. seeing better. Because let's talk about the persecution that you just mentioned. Okay, let's, let's play this out. How are they going to persecute us? Well, you know, I hear all of this fear mongering about the, you know, the, the liberal agenda, secular agenda, the gay agenda, the Muslim agenda. And sometimes all at the same time, even though all of those don't really work together, but that's that's a different right. podcast. Uh, but okay, so what are they going to do? Well, they might fine us. Okay. Like you said, people might lose their jobs. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you imagine complaining to Peter or Paul about that and all the things they suffered? You know, We're going to suffer a lack of standing. We're going to suffer a lack of face. We're going to suffer a lack of power. And... But here's my other question. What's the solution?
0: Hmm.
1: Is your solution, well, we need to get people in power to give us protection? Is that, going to, is that the way that Jesus says we're supposed to do that? Is that what we see Peter say? When you are suffering like this, go complain to your legislator and make them change it. No, it's you do good while suffering by entrusting yourself to a faithful creator. That We're, we're leaving the judgment up to God. And I'm not saying that it would be intrinsically wrong to have, you know, people in power put in rules to protect us. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that when that becomes our our mentality, is that our mentality is then based on fear. And now we've closed ourselves off to finding ways of bearing the witness of Jesus. I'm very afraid that we come with a very majority culture view of trying to tell people about Jesus, where we assume people should already know about Jesus because they're Americans. I mean, why don't you know about, everybody knows about Jesus. You know those guys out there with the signs saying, these are all the sins that are going to send you to hell? What's that guy doing out there? How does he think that's evangelizing? He's going to have most people look at him, roll their eyes, or be sad, or somebody's going to yell at him. He's going to go home and think, well, I was persecuted today. Well, you're, you're assuming that everybody should know that already. One of the things I tell people that is really not that profound, but up so being sin or sin, So of course people are going to sin. That's what you should expect out of people. People sin. Mm-hmm. Just yelling at them about it, that's not the gospel. Jesus wanted to find ways of reaching those people because the reason that they're doing all those things is because they're hurting and they're Mm -hmm. afraid and they're anxious and they don't know any better. And they see Christians and they see Christians who are anxious and afraid and seemingly don't know any better. And that doesn't help. Jesus doesn't just come and beat people over the head. Jesus invites. Jesus, there's throughout Acts, there's this, this bearing witness. It's testimony. They don't just come and say, you know, impose the gospel. It's like, this is what we have seen and heard. And we want you to join in us based on what we have seen and heard in Jesus. It's coming from a much more humble position of, this is what I've seen and heard. I don't know everything. I can't explain everything. But this is what I've seen and heard. And now we later bear witness to what they have seen and heard. And said, look, this is the witness that has transformed the world and has transformed us. That It's always that humble, suffering crossway. And... That's a very minority culture perspective because it's not using the levers of power because the levers of power aren't there to be used, but it's a much more authentic Christian witness because that's where the Christians were in the first century. And again, we always talk about the explosive growth of Christianity in the first couple centuries. It was during those times they were persecuted. It was during those times when they were not the majority culture and they focused on living humbly. Uh, Look at churches of the New Testament. I think Paul was in Philippi for maybe a little bit of time. If you read the account in Acts, it looks like he's in Thessalonica for three weeks. Hmm. So he's so scared. In fact, when he leaves, first Thessalonians all about, I was afraid you were all going to leave. And then Timothy said, Hey, you were still holding firm and loving us. And this is fantastic. This is great. He's then in Corinth a year and a half. And Philippi, pretty strong church. Thessalonica, pretty... Paul tells them, we don't need to write to you about the faith or love. Just keep doing it, 1 Thessalonians Mm -hmm. 4. But we all know the hot mess Corinth is. Because what's the difference? Corinth didn't need... Satan didn't need to persecute Corinth. Satan had good enough fun in the church itself. Didn't need to have those outside forces working on them. Uh, So it wasn't persecuted, and it just tore itself apart. How many churches have we seen? Because there's nothing galvanizing them to... Show Jesus—they're just tearing each other apart. Uh, we have a completely warped model and disfigured model because we've assumed a position that's not in the New Testament. Works against the way Jesus messages, and the apostles bear witness, and we wonder why it's not working.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, you you touched on something several times, and I'd love for you to go back and and sort of recap or, or talk more about the idea of, of fear and, and I think and I, I love that you pointed out first Peter chapter 2 because Peter says, and I love the way you said that it's not it's not Peter scolding them, but but Peter reassuring them not to be surprised. And I think that that anxiety and that fear and even that surprise, when we get surprised by something especially surprised by something painful or we're afraid we're going to be surprised by something painful then we we have this tendency to react in all kinds of ways so so i, I know we're, we're we want to paint a, a hopeful picture of the future but i think in order to do that we kind of have to address what's going wrong so what do you think are the negative consequences of this fear and anxiety what is that causing us to do? And, and where do we see that manifesting itself?
1: We could do a whole podcast on this. All right, right here's a short version. Uh, the, we have to first remember that fear doesn't just come from nowhere, that mm-hmm. we have a lot of forces in our culture stoking the fear because it's what's being used for political and financial profit. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to, this is not a partisan thing. You can watch or find the news on either side and the the majority message now is fear the other, which is not really no. new. Uh, it's it's been going on for for as long as there's been humanity, because you know fear motivates more than love, and so there's always a fear. But you have a specifically packaged version for you know for Christians, which is you need to be afraid of the secular agenda that's trying to eliminate you, eliminate your belief, eliminate God, and all this stuff. And what it starts doing is that first it it puts you on that. Constant alarm and alert, where even the smallest thing starts causing provocations. It, it creates this hardening us versus them, and it creates a demonization, where you know there are some people who are very, I think, good-hearted people, but are just convinced that you are talking to liberal heretic out in liberal you know land of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's just should, you know, fall into the ocean, and, and they've been convinced by that by all these characterizations that they've heard. And now, if they came out here and started to meet some of the people that they think are, you know, these horrible people, they're going to find out very quickly that, you know what, they may not agree with them and everything, but these are just people trying to live their lives and do their thing. Likewise, out here, you know, there's all the rednecks and flyover country that, you know, are, are the end, and end all and be all in the bane of our existence. And again, if they were to go and meet and see, there'd be a recognition of there's a reason they're coming from that. Position. Uh, so we've got that going on in our culture anyway this, this demonization of the other. And again, it's not even just the fact that we're outward looking at everybody else as the problem, and therefore we're closed off to their pain, anxiety. We fear our fears, we don't see how they fear they fear, and therefore we just ascribe the worst mo- judgments and motives to them, but also what it does to us. And the thing that's really perhaps been the most hardest thing to deal with in the past six, seven years is to see the friends that Christians are willing to make because they are not against us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the things they're tolerating, um, and, and these things are not of God, and, and these things are not leading us toward holiness. They're working toward building a certain brand, a certain image, a certain certain political posture, a certain, uh, these other things that do not help us with the gospel at all. And then, therefore, they start seeing that there are people who are fellow Jews, people who don't agree with them on all these things. Now they are the enemy. Hmm. And they are trying to bring in all these destructive things to destroy everything. And they're told about, well, this person does this, you know, there's these problems and that we can't critique those. We can't say, well, you know, as a Christian, I have to say, even though this guy may agree with me on X, Y, and Z, he's doing some of these things that are wrong, and he's saying these things that are wrong, and we cannot, we cannot tolerate that. We need to to really make it clear that is not who we are. And the problem is that, well, they're at least against the people who are against us, so they're, they're our friend, and all of a sudden now we're more like them than they have become like us hmm. in terms of the person that we have we have made friends with. And now we are coarser people, we are more worldly people, we are hurting people, we're hurting our own people. I think a perfect example of this is what's going on with our young people, right? How many times do you hear, what's going on with our young people? We're losing them to our godless society. Well, most of the young, are are there some young people who go out and, you know, get convinced by all these godless ideas and want to go do sins? They're always have and there always will be but a good number of the of the young people who are leaving the church, are leaving the church not because of anything with Jesus. They love Jesus, they love the ideas they were taught, but they did not see those ideas being put into practice. They did not see Jesus embodied in his people and saw the difference and cannot stand the hypocrisy, cannot stand the the, the separation between who they know they're supposed to be in Jesus and what they're seeing. And they have in the, in its own way, its own, boldness to be willing to make that separation Because it's still painful because they still would rather be with us in a lot of ways. But when they feel like it's either I to maintain the integrity of my faith in Jesus, I need to step away from these people because these people are not leading me toward Jesus when these are the people who are supposed to lead you toward Jesus. That is why I say it is an intense judgment on the church. It is a judgment of how we have failed to truly disciple ourselves. It is a failure of how we have allowed worldly forces to disciple us uh, where I have to wonder how many are listening more to who they see on television than than the preacher and the word of god and we've also not prepared people to deal with the world that is we wanted them to enjoy the fantasy land that we created for ourselves Mm. and they live in the real world they're not in the fantasy land we want to believe that exists
0: yeah yeah, that's so good. And I think all of that is, is so right and so necessary to say out loud and to think about, even though they're hard truths. And I think that that's one of the things about hope is that, again, it's not about being Optimistic, or or just thinking positive thoughts, it's it's about dealing with reality and realizing that if we embrace the gospel, that there really is there really is a better future. Uh, God, that's the good news. The good news is that the kingdom of God is breaking into this world. So, if we were to embrace this, even if we were to really embrace the calm and the peace and the confidence and the boldness, the love and the grace. That comes with really embracing the way of Christ and the way of the cross, that even if it means our persecution and death, we're still going to commit ourselves to being people of peace and calmness and de- doing away with the anxiety and the fear and the hatred and the, the building of, of walls. And we're going to start building bridges. If we were to really embrace this, what do you think the next few years might look like? Kind of help paint a, a positive and when I say positive, I just mean hopeful picture of what what might the future hold for the church over the next few years if we really were to turn off cable news and and get off social media some and and really embrace the gospel. What what might that look like?
1: Well, first of all, I one of the things that is a great source of hope is the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church.
0: That's right.
1: And in John 17, Jesus has a prayer that those who will believe in the word will become one as he and the Father are one, and we'll be one with one another and one with God. And we always talk about how we're failing that prayer. And what I would rather focus on is the fact that for those who are in Christ, that prayer is absolutely the way it is. Mm. That's We have relationally with God and relationally with one another. Uh, When I look at what we could do, if we were going to take this seriously and bear witness to this, we would be in a much more comfortable place with Jesus, with our faith, which allows for more questions. It allows for a willingness to, in humility, stop judging. Stop having to the anxiety. I have to know where this person is. I have to determine this or that. I have to know if they're saved. Or and realize God's the judge. It, when you're freed from judging, you can then just see, okay, how can I encourage you? How can I love you? It's, that's gotta be our, our first approach with people. Is how can we build relationships, and it's not just how can I go through machinations to get you to be a believer in Jesus. But no, how do I? How can I become your friend? How can I share in life with you, so that we can? You can. I can bear witness to what life should be like in Christ and that you will want to join that. I believe that in our society more than ever, the true witness of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, sacrificial love for one another, uh, willingness to suffer, uh, kindness, love, empathy, care is more desire than ever before.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Especially when we've gone through this pandemic and seen the alienation and loneliness and the isolation that we're seeing. And when Christians do that together, you know, I, look, I love that in Hebrews 13, because in Hebrews 13, the author just wraps it all up. you got to love one another. You've got to show hospitality. You've got to uh, look at the imprisoned as if you were in prison with them. Uh, don't commit sexual immorality. Don't commit idolatry and greed. Don't uh, fall for false doctrines. Um, continue to suffer marginalization with Jesus.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Share what you have. Thank God and give praise to him. That's what it's all about. That's what it looks like. It's that humble service where whatever society... Society is just a construct. It's a system. It's a power. If we win it, what do we win? Mm. We, if we, we were losing the culture, well, again, we should never have thought we had it. But if we do all this work, you, know, you think about all the work that's been put into trying to build the moral majority mm. and how much it has built the Republican Party in the past my lifetime, 40 years. It has been extremely successful with the Republican Party. And if you look at any chart of church attendance, it's been a complete disaster for the church.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So we don't hitch our wagons to that or, of course, the goal is not to, okay, let's become Christian socialists because that Mm -hmm. would cause the same issue. The, The issue is that we need to be okay with who we are with God and to be okay with our relationship with God so that we can be open to where other people are and to allow them to be open with us. And I think a big part of it is we're I think a good way, another comparison that might be of use to us in the conversation, you know. The one way in which we could talk about a Christian culture was I think a lot of Christians grew up in an era where everybody went to church. And so that's where, you know, a lot of emphasis on, well, this is where other people are not following the witness of scripture had a lot of value. Because everybody's kind of presumed, you know, the basic Christian doctrines. And so we could, you know, make a lot out of faith-only baptism, premillennialism, you know, name name all your issues. Today most people. Especially, animals, they don't know anything about that. Mm-hmm. People go to church, they don't know what the church teaches. Yeah, you know, a lot of times the questions are like, is there a God? What kind of God is he? Uh, how do I, what are what these other things? And that's part of why I say we're, we're not preparing people. We're, we're getting people prepared for a world that doesn't exist, where the issues that they think are the biggest issues are not issues at all, and they mm-hmm. have no word of life to speak to the real issues. If we prepare disciples and we're working with young people and we're giving them the opportunity to do the work and to grow as Jesus wants them to grow uh, and giving that real experience while mentoring them and encouraging them, creating that sense of belonging and acceptance, we might keep young people. And the young people might be able to bear witness to their friends and bring in their friends. And others can come and see that as well. And it, the big hot thing right now is deconstruction. And a lot of people are maybe not fans of deconstruction, but the fact of the matter is look at any statistic. The church is being deconstructed Mm -hmm. as we speak. And some of that, unfortunately, is very necessary and very healthy so that we can then build again. The issue of never is deconstruction. It is what's going to happen when it's come time to reconstruct. Mm -hmm. And we need to deconstruct a lot of our heritage because it was based upon a, a world that no longer exists, a world that may not, should not exist with mentalities and attitudes that may not have been appropriate or proper even then, let alone now. Uh, we need to stop acting and being antagonistic toward everything. That's not the way you, the apostles are. Yeah, there's the people in the world, sin, sinners sin. The solution is we've got to own who we are so that we can humbly, lovingly welcome people to Jesus. Invite them to belong to Jesus, to accept them so that they can follow Jesus. And there's a lot of possibility of that. There's a lot of ability with that where you can reach people you would never have reached 50, 75 years ago because they knew what Church of Christ meant and they didn't want any part of it. But now, what's that? You know, uh, that's a great opportunity where right now you're the best argument you can come up with. Nobody's going to care about that. They're not going to believe you until they can trust you. But once they trust you, they will listen. Yeah. And that's what we even see in the New Testament. So. This is not the end. It is the end of a world. Absolutely. It's apocalypse. It's the end of a world. But it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of Jesus' work. It's not the end of the kingdom. The kingdom will endure. The people of God will endure. And the people of God will come through this trial, and it will be refined as through fire, and what will come out will re- result in the praise and glory of honor of Jesus when he returns.
0: Amen. That's
1: what's going to get us through that.
0: Amen. Oh, thank you, brother. I appreciate that so very much, and I I know that this conversation will bring glory to God and will bring hope to people's hearts. Because, as you said, there's there's opportunities all around us. We just have to have the eyes to to see them. So, thank you for this conversation, and thank you for the work you're doing, brother.
1: Thank you. Thanks for all you're doing, Wes.
0: Thank you so much for being part of the Radically Christian Bible Study podcast today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I want to give a special thanks to Travis Polly and to our McDermott Road Church family for making this podcast possible. As always, we love you, God loves you, and we hope that you have a wonderful day.